Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. We're going to be talking about uh, Winston Churchill and uh, a book, Walk with Destiny, and that's Churchill by Andrew Roberts. And we have the uh, author with us. So um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much indeed. Actually, it's called Walking with Destiny. It's a quotation from uh, the last paragraph of the first of his war memoirs. Oh, excellent. I'll make a note of it. <laughs> so, uh, now, this is, uh, he's, quite a, he's quite a figure uh, in history and has had quite a life. Um, let's start, first of all, where, where was he born? And he's half American, half British, right? That's right, yes. He's uh, born in Blenheim Palace, of the non-royal palaces in this country, and uh, he was the son of Lord Randolph Churchill, who was himself the son of the Duke of Marlborough. So he started off life very much uh, uh, born to the purple. He was uh, about as grand as it gets in Victorian society when the aristocracy were at the apex of that society. His mother was born in Brooklyn. Uh, she was a great beauty and a socialite in Victorian England. And uh, uh, so a very glamorous, um, uh, very glamorous family. So now, so if he, he, he was born and raised with uh, a, a good family, so to speak, um, with money, um, but he still he still chose to go into the he joined the army or something didn't he wasn't he in military? Yes, well, actually, although it had they did have um, a certain degree of money, they were huge spendthrifts. His parents pretty much 
uh, money when his father died um, in 1895, when his father was 45 and he was 20. And um, so, in fact, he was um, forced to become a war correspondent. He, he became the best-paid war correspondent in the world um, at one point. And he also um, was forced to write lots of uh, books as well, which is a very good thing as far as an historian is concerned, because we can understand so much about him through his writing. Now, he was, he, he, he was responsible for writing his own speeches, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. He, he dictated them to secretaries uh, who took down in shorthand, and then he checked them and, and practiced them endlessly and would put an enormous amount of time and effort and thought into his speeches. But he never um, used the speechwriter. He equally never used the spin doctor. He never um, took any notice of opinion polls or focus groups. When uh, Churchill said something, you knew that it came directly from him. Yeah, he spoke right from the heart then. He was able to make it uh, a good speech. but Wonderful speech. Um, uh, 8,000 pages of speeches. In fact, 5.1 million words he spoke in, uh, in public in his career. And he spoke... He had a... Uh, a sixth sense, really, for audiences. He was tremendously good at, at sizing up what would um, what would work with each particular audience. So when we talk about his personality, we hear a lot, um, there's a lot of st- rumors and stories and stuff. Um, was he really um, someone that cried a lot? Yes, he burst into tears on a very regular basis. Uh, it's surprising. One thinks of him as a buttoned-up, a Victorian aristocrats, because that's very much of his age and class and background. But um, in fact, he wasn't at all. He was a much more romantic sort of regency figure, driven by his passions and his emotions. And during the Second World War, he um, burst into tears no fewer than 50 times. And uh, and so it must have been rather off-putting, you know, to have the Prime Minister crying. But people recognised that uh, he was a uh, somebody who didn't be uh, British stiff-up-a-lip kind of um, attitude. Hmm. So, um, uh, now, but he was quite a drinker, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yes, he uh, he was indeed, but he wasn't an alcoholic. He was able to, he had a, an iron constitution. He was able to, um, to deal with alcohol to an extraordinary degree. In fact, there was a friend of his, the journalist C.P. Scott, who said um, Winston Churchill couldn't have been an alcoholic because no alcoholic could have drunk that much. And um, that's, uh, that's very much the case. There's only one occasion in the full 2,194 days of the Second World War that, um, that the people around Churchill believed that he was drunk. Mm. So now, what brought him into politics? Like, how did he get into being in Parliament? Well, he always wanted to be in Parliament. He wanted to um, vindicate the memory of his father. And um, he... Uh, uh, that he actually went into the army was to make a name for himself and get into Parliament uh, after having um, won medals and, and proved his gallantry um, because he didn't have the money to buy a constituency seat in the same way that, uh, that some of the richer families in, in Britain were able to do that in those days. So now he ran as a Conservative. He started 
He's on the liberal side of the Conservative Party. It, uh, his, he inherited from his father a belief in what was called Tory democracy, uh, which came from the Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, which was a very sort of liberal form of, um, of conservatism. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he voted quite a bit for the liberals. Um, how did he become prime minister? Like, what was what was the thing that made him prime minister? Well, he uh, he crossed the floor of the house not once but twice. He became a liberal and then got back after twenty years to being a conservative again. Um, so he was quite uh, mistrusted. His judgment was mistrusted because he also made lots of errors in his life. It was. Uh, he made mistake after mistake. In fact, he told his wife, Clementine, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. And his whole career was full of most extraordinary reversals and ups and downs. Um, but uh, in the 1930s, uh, for various reasons, the first British politician, certainly the first major politician, to warn against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and to point out how important it was that we rearmed, especially in the air and... Uh, um, and to a, a lesser but equally important degree, really, in the, um, in the Navy and the Army. And nobody took any notice of him. And he spent uh, an entire decade uh, warning again and again, and even though he showed tremendous moral courage... Um, he, uh, he was finally allowed to become prime minister and uh, and start the fight back wow you know um when 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 he became uh prime minister um he made some of his best speeches uh, that recent movie that came out about him um how did you find the portrayal i liked it very much yes i thought gary oldman did a wonderful job in uh in portraying Winston Churchill. He caught, of course, he was helped enormously by the prosthetics that he was wearing, which made him look exactly like Churchill. But he was also um, able to catch the sort of twinkle in the eye and the humour of Winston Churchill, which, uh, which I thought was excellent. There have been some very negative portrayals of Churchill recently, but this one was a affectionate one, I thought. Yeah, you know, I, I was going to mention that. The, the, the negative portrayals or the... Uh, um, some of the um, negative things I've heard, like uh, p people seem to protest somewhat against using him as a good man. Uh, what do you think that's all about? Well, I think um, some of it is perfectly reasonable because, as I mentioned, he did make uh, terrible mistakes in his life. He was on the wrong side of uh, the um, debate over women's suffrage, for example. He wanted India not to have its independence, um, at least in the 1930s. He was um, opposed to um, the... He, he took Britain back onto the gold standard at the wrong rate at the wrong time. But these are actually fairly... Um, and also he, he very badly um, mishandled mis, uh, the Dardanelles campaign from World War I, which led to a lot of uh, slaughter on the, uh, uh, out, in, um, out in the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, but compared to the things that he got right, the really huge things that he got right... I don't think um, these uh, these matter terribly. They don't. They're, they're not uh, overwhelming the balance by any means. Yeah, I just I just wonder because I think that um, I just wonder if it's just getting caught up in uh, like in, in the states how they're taking down all the uh, southern leaders and stuff like that. It seems to be um, um, awfully um, 
aggressive. And and he was really a person of his time. So we kind of have to accept what the time was and how people were. Oh, totally. With regard to uh, race, he did believe um, in a hierarchy of races, which, of course, uh, uh, seems uh, ludicrous and, um, and obscene to us now. But nonetheless, back in those days, he was when he was born, Charles Darwin was still alive, and people thought of uh, racial hierarchy as a scientific theory uh, that had been proved. So um, it's, uh, it's very harsh, I think, to try to judge people in the 21st uh, century um, if they were born in the 19th century where completely different attitudes towards what was um, true scientifically were, um, were prevalent. So how, how do you think his popularity was during the war? I guess he was pretty high, wasn't he? It was extraordinary. He broke all records. He was the, easily the more, most popular uh, prime minister we've had uh, before or since. He, uh, the Gallup polls that they took regularly um, through the uh, pretty much throughout the war had him in the high 80s, early 90s um, as uh, as a percentage of um, of popularity, which is uh, truly extraordinary. Uh, after the war, why did he leave um, being prime minister? We lost the election. Um, Despite his enormous personal uh, popularity, the Conservative Party that he led um, were um, profoundly unpopular, not least because of the way that they had supported appeasement before the war. And people were tired of war. After six years, they wanted to um, have the welfare state and all the various things, the nationalization and so on, that uh, the, the Labour Party and the Socialists offered. And... Um, and Churchill was only one name on 650, um, on one ballot out of the 650 members of Parliament. So although he was returned, not many other Conservatives were. Now, he came back for a second term, didn't he, later? He did, yes, uh, between October 1951 and April 1955. And uh, during that ter- term, he built a million council houses um, of, in places that, of course, the original ones had been destroyed in the war, and he uh, got rid of rationing, which was still in existence um, even six years after the end of the Second World War, and uh, and various other um, uh, achievements like that. Wow. So, now, he only had one wife, is that true? Oh, yes, absolutely. He, he married uh, Clementine when he was a young man, and uh, they had an extremely happy marriage, and uh, he uh, he took advice from her not not on technical matters or military matters, but um, on, on the sort of wider and broader um, political matters of uh, who he could trust and, uh, and who he should be loyal to and so on. And she gave him very good advice, really, all, all the way through his life. So, he, now, he, he was um, pretty anti-Hitler, and, and what was his relationship with Russia like? It changed. It changed many times. Um, in uh, the time of the Russian Revolution, he was very, very anti-Bolshevik, anti-communist. Um, then, in the um, when Hitler um, was uh, was rampant in the late 1930s, he wanted to have an alliance with Russia to try and stop Hitler. Then, when uh, Stalin had his Nazi-Soviet pact with Hitler, um, he became very anti-Russian again. Then, three years later, when the sorry, two years later, when Hitler invaded Russia, he became pro-Russian. Um, then, at the end of the Second World War, when he saw the 
that Stalin and the Soviets posed a serious threat to the um, uh, to the balance of power in Europe. He became very anti-Russian, and then after the Soviets explo- exploded their first nuclear device uh, testing successfully in 1949, he became um, not pro-Russian, but um, pro an agreement with uh, Russia that would ensure that there was no nuclear war. So he changed his views, um, uh, changed his stance over Russia many times. But on each occasion, he was in fact putting the British national interests uh, first. And and in that movie, they kind of portrayed him as having kind of, um, I don't know, it was a mixed relationship with FDR. Like he... Um, was trying to get him to come into the war, but he wouldn't. Um, what was his relationship like with FDR? It was a close personal relationship. They both came from the sort of aristocracies, uh, aristocracies of their own countries. Um, he liked him personally. They got on well. Um, they, they appreciated each other's sense of humor and so on. Um, but you're right. He, he became increasingly... Um, uh, disappointed, really, that the United States wasn't getting more involved in World War II, and in fact that it ultimately, uh, in terms of the European sphere at least, it took Adolf Hitler to declare war on America on the 11th of December 1941, um, when he believed that the war, Churchill believed that the war was one for uh, civilization and democracy, and was hoping therefore that the United States would get much more involved much earlier. And one of the things that I've been very fortunate in this book to be able to use uh, lots of new sources that have never been used before for a biography of Churchill. And one of them um, was that the Queen uh, allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And uh, Churchill met King George VI every Tuesday of the war, and and the King wrote down everything Churchill said. And one of the things that uh, struck me most seriously, really, was the, again and again, was the level of um, sheer frustration that Churchill had that the um, Roosevelt administration wasn't getting America um, more involved. Yeah, and they, they of course they they sort of had to get into it eventually with Japan and everything, and then then now the, well you had to get in, you had to get involved in the in the Pacific. There wasn't that the same impetus really in the uh, on the Atlantic side on the European side because. Um, there was no um, great direct threat that you were under. And so I, thought, I think still it was one of the great uh, acts of statesmanship of the 20th century that uh, the Roosevelt administration put Germany first before uh, dealing with Japan. Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. Now, um, I hear a lot when we do a lot of history shows now where the Americans were still supplying a lot of um, supplies to the Great Britain, but they were also doing that for Germany as well, weren't they? No, no, they, no. they weren't. They, they gave, um, uh, well, gave, they sold Britain a, um, a quarter of a million rifles in 1940, which was a uh, tremendously helpful and useful uh, for us, especially as we were under daily threat of invasion at that time. And then after May 1941, when you signed the Lend-Lease uh, agreements, and those were passed in Congress, um, Britain was able to buy much more war material um, for um, uh, not pay in, uh, in gold immediately, which uh, was also very, very helpful for Britain. But no, you um, you um, didn't. Your manufacturers were not uh, 
supplying the Nazis. Okay. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, revisionists. There's a lot of um, conspiracy theories out nowadays, it seems like. <laughs> you should say that again. There's, one, there's a new one every day. It was quite extraordinary, <laughs> um, especially about Churchill. For some reason, there are a lot... I, <laughs> I see the ones ones that say that Churchill was responsible for the recent one was sinking the Titanic. Oh. <laughs> it's completely absurd in every possible way, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't stop with the internet. Uh, uh, the in, in the cyberspace, you get all sorts of completely ridiculous things uh, uh, being argued. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy because it, it gets hard to you, you you have to read something and then you have to always double check. You know, you just can't can't take it on face value anymore no not at all and, and, uh, and actually I, I came across one the other day which has been around for a very long time saying that Churchill wanted to use gas against the Iraqi tribes in, uh, in, in the 1920s and so I went to um, Churchill College Cambridge to uh, try and pin down the truth about this and when you read the letter that he, uh, that he sent as war minister he talks of lacrimotary gas which is tear gas an entirely different kind of gas, of course, from the phosgene or the mustard gas um, that killed people. This was just um, simply intended to um, to uh, you know make them cry, like you use against rioters in uh, in Western cities today. Hmm, that's crazy. How how did um, Churchill deal with Edward the Eighth and his abdication and Mrs. Simpson? Like, what did did he get involved in that? He did, yes, to a disastrous degree, actually, for his career. Um, he, he supported Edward VIII. He didn't see why uh, he couldn't marry Mrs. Simpson. Uh, he um, thought that it, it was a love match, and it was perfectly reasonable, and that the king should not lose his throne just simply because he wanted to marry an American divorcee. And, um, and so he set himself very much against the sort of overarching morality of the time, which... Uh, which said that this couldn't happen, especially the Church of England was was profoundly against it, as was the cabinet and the Times newspaper and um, the royal, the rest of the royal family and so on, the establishment. And so um, he actually got shouted down in the House of Commons in December 1936 when he uh, tried to um, to put his point of view. Hmm. I, wait, so now, and and another one that I, there was that recent movie about the King uh, Kama and um, Ruth Williams being married and stuff like that. Now, how, have you seen the movie, and how accurate do you find it? I'm so sorry. I, which which um, Ruth Williams, uh, who, um, she, which she, movie was it? She was the UK office uh, worker that married the uh, future king um, of an African country. I'm afraid I, 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 I missed that one. Oh, okay. Well, they they sort of implied, I guess, that uh, um, because she was um, white and British, she should never marry a African. And then she went down there to live, and then they brought him back. And uh, I guess they kept him away from the country for quite a while. That's kind of how they portrayed it. Um, it doesn't ring any bells with Winston Churchill's career that I I know of. But I'm afraid I I didn't watch the show. No, well, that's all right. It's all right. What were the biggest surprises you find out uh, about Churchill that when you were doing your research that you were just totally shocked by? Well, I was very, very surprised by this um, 
this attitude towards America, because, of course, in public he wasn't able to criticize the United States, let alone the Roosevelt administration at all, um, in, uh, in 1940 or 1941, especially over things like the um, disposition of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, uh, for example. But when he was talking to the king privately, he did, uh, he did make these uh, various criticisms. And, um, and so that was, uh, that was quite a surprise for me. I was very lucky, really, to be able to be the first Churchill biographer to, to use the king's diaries because um, they proved to be an absolute cornucopia of new, of new things. And we also um, had 40, I was very lucky that there was 41 sets of papers of people who've worked with Churchill that have become available over the last 10 years. Um, the diaries of Ivan Maisky, the Russian ambassador, made by um, eyebrows go up a lot. The extent to which Churchill was willing to... Um, to get, get in bed with the Russians in order to try to stop Hitler. Um, the, uh, the whole area of, um, of the debates going on in the war cabinet, I managed to find the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet meetings, which had never been discovered before. So that, too, was tremendously uh, helpful. And there's something, therefore, on pretty much every page of my book which has not appeared in a Churchill biography before which is pretty astonishing, considering there have been no fewer than 1,009 Churchill biographies published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Is that, now, um, when you um, were also doing research on, on Churchill, um, what, was there, is, is there information out there now that people believe on Churchill that isn't true, that's fairly mainstream? Oh, hundreds of things. Absolutely hundreds of things. Yes, he's... Um, he's. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Famed for all sorts of things that he wasn't responsible for. Um, most recently, there's been a, an attempt to accuse him of being a, a war criminal because of the Bengal famine uh, in 1943, where an awful lot of uh, Indians died in, uh, of um, starvation in Bengal um, because we weren't able to to get uh, rice from various parts of the um, of Asia that the Japanese controlled, um, and this has been put down to um, to Churchill completely unfairly. Um, there, he's been accused of um, of, uh, of pretty much everything. I saw the other day there was a headline on one blog saying Churchill was a non-smoker. Uh, which, considering he smoked 160,000 cigars in his life, <laughs> and of which there is ample um, photographic evidence, um, that's uh, that's just the latest, really. Oh, and there's the, there's the one about him um, wearing his pajamas all the time in Parliament and stuff like that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Yeah, he, that's, uh, a, that's a new. One. I mean, he did he did have a nap in the afternoon every afternoon for for an hour because he believed that it extended his working day and that he'd therefore be able to stay up much later. And he didn't stop working until 2 o'clock in the morning um, uh, most, most evenings of the Second World War. So I think he might have been right about that. But he absolutely never appeared in the House of Commons in his pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, like I said. You just... Um, yeah, yeah. It's so well, The tough. thing to do, really, is just to keep calm and to go back to the original sources and to... Um, and to see the truth, and uh, actually, his his uh, his dress sense was pretty eccentric. He 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 created a sort of what was called a siren suit, which is uh, rather like a boiler suit made of velvet that he used to wear, but never in the House of Commons. Uh, he wore zip-up shoes because he thought it saved him time. Um, he was quite an eccentric in that regard, but he also did know how to um, behave in a dignified way when it came to the dress code for the for the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> now, what do you, what's your thought on the the whole India thing and the colonization and stuff, and the way um, Churchill handled it? Um, what position do you take on that? Well, Churchill, of course, when he started off as a young subaltern in India in the uh, late eighteen nineties, um, fell in love with the British Empire. He he saw aspects of the British Empire as being the, um, the highest point of, of British civilization in that it was uh, a deliberate attempt to help the native peoples of, um, of India. It had uh, doubled the life expectancy in India. It had brought the amount of land under cultivation in India uh, up to eight times what it had been before the British arrived. It abolished appalling practices like uh, sati, the uh, practice of throwing a live widow onto her late husband's funeral pyre, 
Uh, we didn't allow any of that uh, to continue. Um, also, we uh, created the railway system, first universities, uh, the English language, handed on um, Western democracy, and various other aspects of, uh, of the world, uh, the, the, the more developed uh, modern world, that um, uh, has stood India in very good stead in its years since independence. So, so Winston Churchill was, believed that that was something worth defending. And, um, and again, you have to see uh, these beliefs in the context of their times. Right, right, of course, of course. <clears throat> so how is this relationship with France? That's another big, um, you know, uh, hit and miss with UK, UK and, and, and France. Yeah, well, he was a great Francophile. He liked the French. He, uh, he spoke execrable French himself, but used to make jokes about how bad his French was. But uh, nonetheless, he was um, he visited France an awful lot in his life, and uh, he was um, all in favour of the alliance with France. But of course, in, in the First World War. But when in the Second World War the French um, signed an armistice with Hitler and uh, effectively surrendered, um, he knew that the French fleet, if it fell into the hands of the Nazis. Um, would uh, be used against uh, Britain and, and, and might well be involved in attempting to invade Britain. So he sank a good deal of it at uh, Oran in uh, North Africa in July 1940, which, um, as one can understand from the French point of view, um, made him tremendously unpopular. But frankly, it was a, a desperate measure that, uh, in my view, needed to be taken in order to protect the British Isles themselves. Now, now, how 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 long do you think um, the war would have lasted if the states had not got involved and Japan didn't get involved as quickly? Well, um, we um, we might well have lost it, of course. I, mean, I don't know how long it would have lasted because we weren't um, uh, after the Battle of Britain had been won. Hitler wasn't able to invade Britain, um, but he was building up an enormous force of U-boats. He had at the end of the war 463 operational U-boats, which could have starved Britain. Um, and, uh, and Britain, of course, desperately was, was buying food from the United States. If the United States didn't sell it, um, then we might well have had uh, mass starvation in this country. Also, if the United States hadn't got involved and helped the uh, Russians, um, it might have taken a much longer for, uh, for the Russians to win the war in the East, you know, and maybe they even wouldn't have won it at all. It's, it's perfectly possible. So, um, so yes, American intervention was uh, was absolute uh, precondition for victory of the Second World War. Do you think Hitler was surprised by how much America contributed to the war? Yes, oh, absolutely. He, 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 it's extraordinary that he declared war on you, really, because uh, America was an uninvadable uh, country, he had um, no way, no senior Nazi had even been to America apart from Joachim von Ribbentrop, who went to New York for a few, um, few months in the 1920s to sell champagne. But other than that, none of them knew anything about uh, America. And yet by the calendar year 1944, when Britain produced 28,000 warplanes and Russia and Germany each produced 40,000, the United States produced 98,000 warplanes, almost the same as the whole of the rest of the world put together. Um, and that was something that uh, if Hitler had um, 
been better informed about the United States, he'd have realized that, uh, that it, was, um, it was unwinnable. Yeah, I think Hitler at that time probably thought he was undefeatable, you know. Yes, he did, and he also wildly underestimated. He had no sense of, of American society either, or the way in which once America decided to, um, to uh, industrialize uh, in, a, in a military way, it was able to churn out liberty ships and, uh, and the most extraordinary amount of material. It put 16 men and women into uniform. I mean, uh, these, were, these were numbers that, uh, that the, the German, the Third Reich, just had no way of, uh, of dealing with by, uh, by 1942. What's your thoughts on all that, um, all, the, all the shows and people that are <clears throat> directed toward Hitler being still, or Hitler living and not killing himself and making it to Argentina and, and all the different stuff like that? Well, again, I, uh, conspiracy theories are, are, um, are ran rampant and riot about, uh, about these things. And you, look, you see a lot of them, actually, Especially the ones to do with Hitler of somehow surviving the um, the ruins of the Reich Chancellery in April 1945, actually um, were the KGB propaganda in the post-war period, which were they were deliberately put about in order to uh, destabilise um, Germany, to keep people still worried about the Nazis, and uh, to uh, generally um, cause disruption and misinformation in the West. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I sort of agree, but I, it's just that it's making mainstream. They're showing, you know, hunting Hitler on, on um, like, History Channel, you know. <laughs> I know. Well, there are an awful lot of things on the History Channel that basically should be on the same channel as, as you know, aliens and, uh, and uh, all yeah. of those kinds of uh, things. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're not like they used to be. History and Discovery used to be very uh, educational. You could learn things, but now it's very... Um, Entertainment prone, I think. Entertainment, yes, exactly. Ice truckers and all of that yeah. kind of thing. I, 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 don't, I don't see that, uh, that ice truckers should necessarily be on, on, uh, on either of those uh, uh, information channels, at least. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. How did Churchill end up um, um, uh, dying eventually? Like, what, what, what took him away? Well, um, actually, he lived until he was 90, even oh. though he'd smoked 160,000 um, cigars and, and drank a great deal of brandy and champagne uh, in his life. Uh, he, he had this iron constitution, as I mentioned, and he, he died very peacefully uh, in his bed at home in London, surrounded by his, his children and grandchildren um, at the age of, uh, of 90 in January 1965. Wow. And I, I could imagine the funeral must have been pretty massive. It was, I'm sadly, uh, only, I was only two years old at the time of the funeral, um, but uh, it was one of the very great occasions in, uh, in British history. He wanted lots of music, lots of bands, and, uh, and there were nine um, in all. There was a great uh, procession uh, from the Houses of Parliament to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral where he was buried. Uh, the heads of state and, uh, and heads of government of um, uh, scores of countries came to uh, Britain. Her Majesty the Queen, who um, doesn't go to funerals, uh, attended this one, and the um, and the body was then taken down the River Thames and uh, buried at Bladen, the small churchyard just outside um, Buck uh, outside Blenheim Palace. Uh, 
and it was one of those moments where, um, as I, I mentioned several times in uh, in my book, uh, Walking with Destiny, right at the end, um, it was one of those times that many commentators saw as being the the end of um, of uh, uh, British greatness. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty amazing. What do you think the um, biggest impact? that his life has will have on us in, in now generations? Well, I think, um, of course, uh, they're still living in the, in the post-war period in a way. You know, the, the fact that civiliza- civilization did manage to defeat um, the great evil of Nazism is something that uh, should still be celebrated. I think his life has many um, lessons for leadership of um, today, his moral courage, his physical courage, his ability to learn from his many mistakes. Um, I think his sense of, um, of foresight is tremendously important, and his uh, eloquence. He put all of those together, and uh, and you have somebody who uh, who really did help save civilization. And, and when you talk about moral clergy, was there any um, particular scandals that were set around Churchill? Scandals. Well, there are some that brought down various friends of his. Um, there were financial scandals um, uh, that, uh, that dogged um, uh, three or four of the, uh, of the senior members of the Liberal um, coalition before the First World War, and then um, one or two during the Second World War that forced the resignations of, um, of friends of his. But um, as far as personal scandals, you know, he... Uh, he he, he, he wasn't, um, I mean, he was totally sexually faithful to the wife, Clementine, who he loved. Um, he was um, uh, he was always broke all the time, but uh, he uh, was one of those people who believed that when you didn't have any money, the best thing to do was to work harder uh, rather than to cut back. And uh, so he, um, so there are no scandals there either. And um, no, he's, uh, he's pretty much scandal-free as a politician. You know, I, I, I see quite a bit with the politics today and the leaders. Um, a lot of people use Churchill or FDR or Kennedy as kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a threshold or a line that they compare themselves with. I, I, you know, and they mention something that they might have said, these leaders. Um, do you think he's really got influence over any of the leaders today, or are there any leaders that were kind of similar to him that you've noticed? Um, I, th- I think he does, in fact, actually, yes. I, um, I think that um, people do read about him, you know, people who are interested in going into politics and who are already in politics um, do read a- a- about him. Um, I think that he had, I know that he had a tremendous influence on um, the political views of Margaret Thatcher, uh, for example, um, who also tried to emulate his, uh, his moral courage. And um, I think when people read about him, uh, which they do in enormous numbers, this um, this book, uh, Walking with Destiny, has sold 150,000 copies uh, already, only after a couple of months of publication. And so um, uh, there obviously is a great sense of interest in him, and I think that that must be connected in some way to um, to his leadership and the, and the quality of leadership. And so there are lots of lessons, I think, that can be learned um, for the present day from the example of such an extraordinary man.
I think one thing that I noticed is uh, if you look at him, he was also very political savvy as well. And I think that's, a lot of people don't realize that. No, that's right. It, that's, a, that's a very good point. He, um, you know, you don't get to the top and stay at the top of, of politics for a very long period unless you have a sense of, of what will go down with the public um, and what won't. And so he, uh, he certainly, I mean, for example, after um, getting back into power in 1951, he didn't start to uh, dismantle the welfare state, even though he hadn't uh, um, agreed with every aspect of it by any means. Um, he had enough political nous to know what the British people would put up with and what they wouldn't. So, uh, so I, think, uh, I think you're right. It's... Um, one, one mustn't just think of Churchill as being a, a sort of mad maverick who, who stuck to his guns and was proved right. He was actually a much more, um, much more subtle, much more complex, much more uh, intellectual figure than that. And did he have a good relationship with the royal family in, in all? Or? Well, he didn't start off well, uh, certainly. King uh, George V thought of him as... Um, as uh, an untrustworthy firebrand with bad um, judgment. Um, King George VI, especially at the time of the abdication crisis, when he had, of course, supported his elder brother, um, also distrusted his judgment and, in fact, told the Prime Minister of Canada that he would not appoint Winston Churchill Prime Minister in, under any other circumstances than a world war. And then, of course, we did get a world <laughs> war. <laughs> and, um, and those were the circumstances in which he was appointed. At which point the, um, the whole thing changed, and during the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, uh, the King and Churchill made uh, firm friends. In fact, in those diaries that I mentioned, uh, he refers to Churchill as his friend, and he became the only one of the King's four prime ministers uh, to whom he referred uh, by his Christian name. So it's, um, it was a very much a, um, a, a close relationship, and then he had another great uh, relationship with the present Queen, who he rather worshipped and, uh, and thought was wonderful. And so, um, and so the, what started off as a, as a pretty rocky relationship with the House of Windsor actually turned into um, fast friendship. Well, what started it so rough? Like, what was, what was the problem that they sort of saw in Churchill at the beginning? Well, appeasement really was, the, was what was... This wasn't the beginning because it actually goes back to the period of for appeasement when they just thought he had no judgment. Crossing the floor of the House of Commons not once but twice is something very very few politicians had ever done before or since. And, uh, and the royal family uh, thought that that was the, was the mark of a maverick. But by the 1930s, the royal family were very much committed to Neville Ch Chamberlain's policy of appeasing Adolf Hitler in the hope that that would um, prevent, that would lessen Hitler's demands. And prevent another catastrophic war breaking out. And so when Churchill instead said that we needed to, um, to rearm as much as possible and that Hitler couldn't be trusted and we shouldn't give anything to him, uh, it, was, um, it was considered by many in the royal family to be uh, yet another example of his misjudgment. Well, what do you think, uh, how do you think he would do or be in, in a world of today? I think he'd be very good, actually, at, um, at tweeting. I think he's, uh, he'd be excellent. Many of his best reposts and, uh, and witticisms uh, do fit into 
characters or fewer. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he was very good uh, at um, the radio when that came online. Um, and every politician in every era has to try to command the latest forms of communication and, and make them work for them. And I think Churchill would have been absolutely fine at, um, at doing that. There's a, um, there's a great joke, which also would have fitted onto a, a tweet that Churchill made when his, uh, when his cook um, said that their... That, sorry, his private secretary, Jock Colville, said that their cook had been made pregnant as a result of uh, a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. And Churchill immediately replied... Obviously not one of the two gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He'd be in a Twitter war with uh, Trump. <laughs> well, I just wonder what, what people of, of, of that generation and that world during the war and how, how hard people in the 40s fought to stay alive and to keep, you know, the empire together and the country would feel about... Um, the way nationalism is and the and all of uh, the problems that we've got going on and and brexit even and stuff like that and or even joining the union would he have even supported that you know i don't think he'd have uh, supported joining the european union at all no he or at least britain joining it he was very much in favor on, of there being a, a common market um the, he was a leader of the european movement and he made great speeches in the late 1940s uh supporting uh, the idea as he said, that Teuton must never fight Gaul, i.e. the French and Germans must never go to war to, with one another, because, of course, the last two times they'd done it, they'd nearly ripped the continents apart, uh, and had led to the deaths, of course, of very many of Churchill's closest friends. Um, so he was in favour of there being a European Union, but actually when you look at his speeches, he never advocated Britain uh, joining it. And, uh, in fact, in, when he was Prime Minister in the latter part, uh, the second of his premierships, the 1951-55 to 55 one, which of course was only two years preceded the uh, Treaty of Rome that brought um, Europe into being in 1957, he did absolutely nothing to, um, to promote Britain getting involved. He kept us out of the Iron and Steel Confederation, he kept us out of the European Army, um, and he wrote minutes saying that uh, what mattered to Britain really was the Commonwealth and the links with the United States, the special relationship. Yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Um, how, so having a successful book, Historial, um, how, how do you feel? How does it make you feel? <laughs> it truly is the most wonderful feeling in the world. I've been, uh, I've been writing history books for 30 years. Uh, some of them have been so... Uh, uh, they've won, all won prizes, which is very nice, but uh, some of them have sold so few copies uh, that I actually think I've personally met every single one yeah. of the readers <laughs> of, uh, of some of my books. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, it's tremendous to... Um, I'm about to embark on a five-state, 50-speech um, book tour uh, of, um, of, the, of uh, the United States and uh, it's something I've always wanted to do, and you know, I'm tremendously excited. And uh, it really is the best feeling in the world to be. I've been on the New York Times bestseller list for eight weeks now. And it's, uh, it's the most tremendously exciting and thrilling period of my life, really. Yeah, pretty amazing, but an incredible book. Um, now, do you have um, 
a website or anything that uh, if people want to uh, contribute or get a hold of you or anything like that? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah? absolutely. No, I do. Um, it's uh, www.andrew-roberts.net. Um, and um, uh, they can read the reviews of the book and uh, various other bits of information about the book. Um, and, of course, uh, it's also got a, got a link through to Amazon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the new book, book club of the world now, eh? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, people should go to their independent book stores, of course. Under of course. Uh, no circumstances, that would really be, uh, be the best thing for the long-term uh, uh, future of literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, this has been a very, very interesting show, and uh, we've been talking with the author of Walking with Destiny, and that's Winston Churchill, and um, Andrew Roberts. Thank you very much. You are kind. Thank you very much indeed. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.